Well, God established his land over 3,000 years ago. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Rod Hember. I'm Janice. And this is Bible Discovery TV. We are discovering history that puts Israel in place over 3,100 years ago. We'll talk about it as we uh, talk about Numbers chapter 34. It's very, very interesting and very challenging for some people to listen to today, but it's the truth. It's going to be a good one. Corey? Well, Numbers 33 talks about the wilderness journey of Israel, so we're going to talk about an aspect of that as well. Ryan? Today, a question. Why was God angry with Balaam for going to Balak when it was God who gave him permission to go to him in the first place? Yeah, that's a really good question. The, the whole Balak mystery. Janice? The authority of God's word. All right, very good. So get your Bible guide out. If you don't have one, stay there. We'll tell you how you can get one. And let us study from Numbers chapter 34 as we begin to look at the Bible. Numbers 34, 1 through 12. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land of Canaan, this is the land that shall fall to you as an inheritance, the land of Canaan to its boundaries. Your southern border shall be from the wilderness of Zin along the border of Edom. Then your southern border shall extend eastward to the end of the Salt Sea. Your border shall turn from the southern side of the ascent of Akrabim, Continue to Zin, and be on the south of Kadesh Barnea. Then it shall go on to Hazar Adar, and continue to Asmon. The border shall turn from Asmon to the brook of Egypt, and it shall end at the sea. As for the western border, you shall have the great sea for a border. This shall be your western border. And this shall be your northern border. From the great sea, you shall mark out your border line to Mount Hor. From Mount Hor, you shall mark out your border to the entrance of Hamath. Then the direction of the border shall be toward Zedad. The border shall proceed to Ziphron, and it shall end at Hazar Enon. This shall be your northern border. You shall mark out your eastern border from Hazar Enan to Shepham. The border shall go down from Shepham to Riblah on the east side of Ain. The border shall go down and reach to the eastern side of the Sea of Chinnereth. The border shall go down along the Jordan, and it shall end at the Salt Sea. This shall be your land with its surrounding boundaries. Numbers chapter 34, verses 1 through 12. The land of Israel is a fascinating place. When I first went in 1991, it was interesting. And I met Jim Catalan over there with some people. And uh, we were doing some shoots and all of that. And it was interesting because there were no walls built uh, to protect them from terrorists and all of that. And that we got stuck over there for about six weeks because it was in the midst of the first war in Iraq. So it's very, very interesting. And, you know, the territory of ancient Israel is outlined in our reading today. 
And though it has been noted many times, it is still worth saying that it's an amazing thing how this small little piece of land, so much emphasis and fighting has occurred. God promised this land to the descendants of Abraham about 2100 BC. That's 4100 years ago. And it was taken over by his descendants around 1400 BC. Its borders embedded and flowed over its lifetime. And there were many wars and a few exiles. But the intention of God's land grant to Israel is outlined in Numbers chapter 34. It's what we read today. And it can really be difficult for us to see these concepts written in black and white in a book so respected worldwide as our Bible. Our modern history challenges us and our popular culture pushes against the authority of God, the authority of the Bible. Well, regardless of your stance on modern Israel today, it is so important to take note of its history with God, which began so far beyond our time, it's not even funny. If we have any hope of properly understanding our present, it is in understanding our past that God has preserved for us on the pages of his Bible, the pages of this book, which this program is about. So take your Bible guide and turn to the passage today, Numbers chapter 34. What an amazing passage this is. If you don't have a Bible guide, let me encourage you to get one by calling us or writing to us, and we'll send it to you. But let's pray first and ask the Lord to teach us His way and show us His path. Father, we, you know, there's a lot of cultural, political ideas in our minds about your word, because your word speaks about Israel. Help us to understand that it's important to realize that your word is also our history. Now, there are people who don't believe that, but I do. And so I pray, Father, in Jesus' name, that you would help us to teach according to your Holy Spirit so people can hear it and help us not to put our thinking in this. That's what a lot of people do, and that's a problem. But to take your words and change our thinking. Thank you, Father. In the name of Jesus Christ, we ask this Holy Spirit, and we said together, amen. Now, with that in mind, we turn with our Bible guide, and we see this in chapter 34. I'll just begin reading. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land of Canaan, this is the land that shall fall to you as an inheritance, the land of Canaan to its boundaries. Now, did you hear that? Because God established his land over 3,000 years ago. Time does not change things. God does. Time does not change things. God does. I remember hearing a famous singer saying, about 30 years ago. Well, time changes everything. Well, actually, no, it, it doesn't. Because God's mind is perfect. God's mind is holy. His mind doesn't drift like ours. His mind doesn't forget. Keep that in mind. And if we have the mind of Christ, 
We understand that all of our sins must be dealt with. That becomes very important. So let's read on and learn more about what God said. It says, your southern border shall be from the wilderness of Zin along the border of Edom. Then your southern border shall extend eastward, end of the salt sea. And your border shall turn from the southern side of the ascent of Akrabim, continue to Zin, and be on the south of Kadesh Barnea. And then it shall go from Hazor Adar and continue to Asmon. The border shall turn from Asmon to the brook of Egypt, and it shall end at the sea. That's a very specific border. God gave specific borders where his people would live. You see, Christians, Christ-like followers, learn as they read the Bible that God demonstrates his witness in the world through Israel. Think about that a minute. We're so centered on our own ways and our own country and our own will that we think everything is about the election. Everything. No, it's not. Everything is about what happens. No, it's not. God has shifted time and changed where the attention goes. You know where it's at? On Israel. We can learn where we are in time by looking at Israel. That's the only nation that God himself named. Isn't that something? No wonder they're trying to get rid of Israel. And they're trying to get rid of it in name. And Palestine was discovered and presented based off the Philistines back in about 135 AD by a Roman emperor. Unbelievable. All right, let's go back to the scripture and learn more. It says, as verse 6, As for the western border, you shall have the great sea for the border. And this shall be your western border. And this shall be your northern border. From the great sea, you shall mark out your border line from Mount Hor. From Mount Hor, you shall mark out your border to the entrance of Hamath. Then the direction of the border shall be towards Zedah. The border shall proceed from Ziphron, and it shall end at Hazer Inan. And this shall be your northern border. You shall mark out your eastern border from Hazor Inan, to Shephram, and the border shall go down from Shephron to Riblah, and the east side of Ain, and the border shall go down and reach the eastern side of the Sea of Chenethereth. The border shall go down along the Jordan, and it shall end at the Salt Sea. This shall be your land with its surrounding boundaries. Again, this is specific. God has made specific decisions about his borders. Christ followers learn that the Lord does specific things to show his power. God does specific things to show his power. And God is doing something very specific right now with his word. And let me encourage you that you need to read his word. And so today we're going to pray, Father, in Jesus' name, help me to read your word and learn it and understand what you've done. Because this is important. Our history is not about elections, not about this, not. It's about what you're doing, God. And history is you are the one dictating. You are the one controlling it. So help us, Lord, to get with you and get with your word. Teach us your way and show us your paths in the name of Jesus Christ. And we said together, amen. Amen. 
Okay, so I know that our reading is Numbers chapters 32 and 33, but I want to turn back to Numbers 22 today because some get really confused about what's going on in this chapter, especially in regard to God's anger towards Balaam. Now, since it has been a few days since we read this chapter, let me just give you a little overview of the situation. Israel has set up camp in the plains of Moab, and Balak, the king of the Moabites, sees this and he gets really scared because Israel had just defeated their Amorite neighbors. So Balak decides decides to summon Balak, a prophet whose blessings and curses on people seem to be effective. And not surprisingly, God doesn't give Balaam permission to go to Balak and curse Israel. But King Balak is persistent and he sends a second group of messengers to Balaam. As he did with the first group of messengers, Balaam tells the men to stay the night so he can consult with God once more. This time, God's answer is different. He says to Balaam, If the men come to call you, rise and go with them, but only the word which I speak to you, that you shall do. Then the Bible says, So Balaam rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. And then God's anger was aroused because he went, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. Now, this last part has confused some people because it seems that God grants Balaam permission to go to Balak, but then gets angry with him for going. So how do we resolve this apparent issue? Well, this segment uh, presents one possible solution. When prophet for hire Balaam is sought out by Balak, king of the Moabites, to come and curse Israel, God strictly forbids Balaam, saying, You shall not go with them, you shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. But Balak, desperate and refusing to give up, sends for him again. Balaam's response to the king's men is the same. You also stay here tonight, that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. But this time the Lord's response is different. If the men come to call you, he says, rise and go with them, but only the word which I speak to you, that you shall do. With permission granted, the Bible says, So Balaam rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with them. Then God's anger was aroused because he went. The big question that's often raised here is if God gave Balaam permission to go to Balak, then why was he angry with him for going? Actually, the solution is in the text itself. In fact, it hinges on the tiny two-letter word IF in verse 20. It's very easy to read through God's instructions and miss the condition that he placed upon Balaam. Nevertheless, God's stipulation is, If the men come to call you, rise and go with them. And in this, Balaam failed, because he did not wait to see if the men would return to him, but rather eagerly sought them out. Confusion can arise here if it is assumed that the men were staying in Balaam's own tent, because it virtually voids God's condition in verse 20, since their calling on him in the morning would be unavoidable. But in reality, with such a large entourage, there just wouldn't have been enough room for them in Balaam's tent. Thus, they likely stayed in a large camp with many tents. So Balaam knowingly disregarded God's explicit instruction. Even so, God's anger at Balaam was not only that he disobeyed, but also because of why he disobeyed. As Walter C. Kaiser Jr. points out, With King Balak's first inquiry, Balaam rightly replies that the Lord refused him permission to go with them to curse Israel. What Balaam had artfully neglected to mention was God's reason for refusing, because Israel is blessed. Mentioning this just might have ended the Moabites' attempts to curse a people God blessed. But Balaam apparently was playing both sides of the street on this one. He deliberately left the door open, 
perhaps hoping that he could somehow benefit from such a highly visible ministry. Both 2 Peter 2.15 and Jude 11 confirm that Balaam was a man who ran greedily for profit and loved the wages of unrighteousness. And this sinful lifestyle is what stirred up the holy and righteous and justified anger of God. So it seems God gave Balaam a condition which he failed to meet. And that condition was, if the men come to call you, rise and go with them. And the problem is in that some versions of the Bible, this condition of God gets lost in translation because the word if has been changed to a different word. And this is where the confusion comes. But God does seem to place this condition on Balaam here, which Balaam fails to meet. Apparently, Balaam was more eager to make a profit than to serve God. And for his disobedience and love for unrighteous profit, God's anger was rightfully aroused. I think it's important to remember that he was interested in the money and he could have got the money and he was thinking that God gave him permission to go to get the money, but he didn't pay attention. God said, if they come to you, it's very, very important. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's important. Also, the other interesting thing is a donkey talks. Yeah, that a is very speaks. interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was in Israel and I said, the donkey speaks. And uh, there was an, a friend of mine who was there and he didn't know the Bible that well. And he said in Arabic to his brother, he said, did a donkey really talk? <laughs> and yes, he, he did. According to the Bible It's very, very interesting because he saw the angel. Anyway, another story for another day. Yeah. Very good, Ryan. Corey? All right. Well, today I want to talk about the tabernacle camp of Israel because when we get into Numbers 33, we have a retelling of the whole wilderness wandering experience, uh, kind of site by site. Uh, and and um, earlier on in the scriptures, we're given at the beginning of Numbers, we're given how the camp was actually arranged. And historians, when they read this, something pricks in their ears. It, 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 it hits a, a couple flags go up where you're like, wait a second. I've seen this before. Take a look. The Bible meticulously describes the construction of the Israelites' tent tabernacle twice in Exodus. Later in Numbers, the Bible explains that Israel was required to camp in a certain way around the tabernacle, in a rectangular fashion and oriented east to west. While the average Bible reader may struggle with the monotony of the descriptions, these details have not only helped to explain the theological underpinnings of Israel, but have also redeemed the tent tabernacle from skeptical scholarship of the 19th century that believed it to be imagined by a post-exile priest, in reality just a derivative of the temple to retroactively explain the worship system of Israel and justify the importance of an Israelite priesthood. But this theory has serious flaws. The tabernacle is only superficially related to the temple and does not appear to be derivative. And the tabernacle and its camp are very closely related to religious and military tents from the 3rd and 2nd millennia BC. A priest inventing the account in the Persian period would have reflected religious structures from their time. So what tent structures closely resemble the Israelite tabernacle? The research of several scholars has been instrumental in revealing the very ancient comparatives to the tabernacle that bring us decisively to Egypt. Portable tents were used for religious and secular purposes as early as Egypt's first dynasty. They served as places to conduct religious ceremonies associated with mummification, as demonstrated in tomb paintings and as evidenced by fragments of remaining poles and frames. 
The secular use of portable tent structures at this time were mainly for outdoor lounging, attested to by the gold-covered wooden rods and joints to a queen's pavilion discovered in her tomb. Closer to the time of the biblical tabernacle is the New Kingdom of Egypt, when the use of tent structures had proven valuable in warfare. An amazing parallel to the tabernacle of God can be seen in the war camp of Ramesses the Great. Surviving illustrations show a rectangular camp oriented east to west with Ramesses' tent near the center. The tent is divided into a reception area and a throne room, remarkably similar to the layout of the tabernacle with its reception area and the Holy of Holies that housed the Ark with its mercy seat. The last known examples of Egyptian tents in this form and used for this purpose come from the 12th century BC, the biblical time of the judges. The author of the tabernacle accounts accurately describes a tent and camp of Israel that fits into a very ancient Egyptian context. Moreover, the Bible describes that Israel left Egypt prepared for war. Is it any wonder then that they would be arranged in a way that was familiar to them while installing God as their king and fierce leader? It's always interesting to see how God informs an already existing culture. Israel wasn't alive. Ancient Israel wasn't alive in a vacuum. And neither are you and I. There are things around us that we understand a certain way because of our human culture, our collective human culture around us. And God wants us to understand him. He wanted ancient Israel to understand him. So he chose to use uh, symbols from, from their already existing culture and reinvent them and, and, and reinterpret them and use them to explain who he was and explain different authority structures to Israel. And I find that so interesting. It's not something we should shy away from, but something we should push into to try to understand more about how God speaks and, and what he was saying to Israel. It's very, very interesting, Corey. Thank you so much. Janice? The authority of God's word. Today, we're looking at uh, chapters, uh, numbers, actually, chapter 34, and it's talking about the appointed boundaries of Canaan. Now, here at Bible Discovery, we look at the historicity of the Bible, and we choose to believe it 100%. So when we read the scripture and we bring it to you, we deliver it as something that is true, that is from the word of God. Now, many these days, it seems, as you look into our culture, they look at history and they try to change it or disregard it or even erase what has happened to fit into their own narrative or worldview. We do not want to do that here. Looking back at history helps us to move forward. Helping us to walk with God is his word, and what he gives us is very important. Now, looking at the ancient boundaries of the promised land that were instructed by God to Moses, and his successor Joshua then would carry out the instructions. Now, I find it interesting from the Holman Study Bible. It says this, talking about uh, Numbers chapter 34. The borders reflect the ideal territorial limits for the land of Israel as outlined by divine instruction. These were not fully realized until the time of the United Monarchy under David and Solomon. And so, Rod, we truly believe that these boundaries given were given by God. In fact, they were. To Israel. 
And that is where we stand. That is what we look at. And we're not going to try to change or erase history in order to fit into some type of narrative. Even though many others presently try to change history and try to do that. But this is what God said. And this isn't something new, is it? This challenge of of this land. No, it's not. In fact, uh, as we as we focus on this and think about it, uh, we, we take the Bible as God telling us history. And it's not like a novel. You know, you don't read it like entertainment. It's not for entertainment, but it's to inform us. So, and we always say this, you know, if you don't remember, then you'll repeat yourself. So if, if hist- we don't remember history, it will repeat itself. Well, God knows that. And so he's put it down in the Bible. Now, I grew up in being educated in the system of uh, previous years ago, 40 years ago. And I can tell you that uh, what they educate now is very different in history than what they did then. And it's very fascinating that the Bible has stayed the same. Mm -hmm. In fact, the Bible went with me to school. I took it to school for that reason. But I took it because I needed to learn from it. Mm -hmm. But that's important, Janice. And uh, we need to pay attention to that because Israel is a nation Mm -hmm. I like what you said, set by the divine mind, yeah, the divine and it, thinking. And I think it's also important to note, too, that it doesn't mean that you necessarily wholesale agree with everything that modern Israel as no, a nation that's right. does. No, that's yes. right. You can that's recognize an objective historical truth without just saying, well, then therefore Israel mm. can do no wrong. That's right? exactly correct. Because we even see that in the scripture yep. where, where people are people. And yep. make mistakes, yes. really bad ones sometimes, really evil ones sometimes. So I just wanted to add that. And, and also pot. God is God. Yes. People are people, but God yeah. is God and he's Indeed. holy. I want to thank you for writing for your Bible guide or for calling or going online. Let me just say that the Bible guide does cost us some money to spend so that we can send it to you. And I want to thank you for giving to us and being a part of this. And I'd like to pray for you. Father, I pray for everyone who's given. I pray for all of the people who become our partners and join with us in sharing the word of God, sharing your Bible with the world. Lord, that is awesome. So bless them and help them today in Jesus' name, amen.